Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay. In 2015, the New Zealand Society of Authors commissioned the most recent interviews in its 30-year oral history project. It's these authors who will be sharing their experiences in the third season of the NZSA Oral History Podcast. In our last episode, author Chris Ellis talked to Deborah Shepherd about his many years of active service for the New Zealand Society of Authors. During those years, Chris was also writing and working as a literary agent. We start today's episode with a discussion between Chris and Deborah about Chris's writing style, especially Chris's ability to describe the world around his characters. I, I think that I'm quite good. One of the things I'm good at as a novelist is... Um, evoking places, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily real places, but actually inventing places, imaginary places, and um, making them real. Um, yeah, I don't quite know where that comes from, but uh, it, 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 is, it is something that people have remarked on, that a novel, um, Black Earth, White Bones, which is set in yeah. an imaginary yeah. Pacific island, and um, on this island there's, um, there's a hotel, and it's called the Royal Albert mm. Hotel, something from ex-colonial days um, and you know I invented this this, uh, this thing um, and someone said to me he was a uh, associate professor at the the University of the uh, South Pacific Papua, Papua New Guinea and he was an expert in uh, South Pacific politics and he said oh he said I know I know that place I've, I, I know that hotel <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I've stayed there <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's, uh, I've, I've had a number of experiences like that, which is curious, makes you feel a little bit strange that, that uh, people uh, recognise something that you know is invented. That's as I was reading it, I kept thinking, but where, but where is this? Like, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Have you travelled to the Pacific quite a lot? No, not, not much. I've been oh. to Fiji. We had a, yeah. a short holiday in Fiji. Um, but I suppose uh, that place, Ventiac, in the, those islands, in that book, the idea for that was kind of um, came partly from Nauru, and I studied Nauru a little bit and what phosphate mining had done to right. that uh, particular place and how it had, in some sense, enriched the people who lived there, but in another sense, impoverished them. Um, and uh, Ventiac, of course, isn't quite like that because there are, in fact, two islands and one mm. has been ruined in this kind of way, but mm. the other is um, sort of lives off this, mm. Um, mm. The, uh, the exploitation of, mm. of this. So that sort of idea was uh, certainly behind the book. And I, I just wanted to invent a place, really. I just wanted oh. to see if I could do it, oh, invent a place and invent... So well. um, invent the flora and the fauna and there's all the stuff about ants. Um, we've jumped way ahead but that's all right, we, that's what happens when we can move back and forth because this was the book that you said was an experience where the writing just, it, it was, it was like, it flew, it, it, it just came together. Not that book. Fairly easy. Oh, was it not that book? <laughs> no, 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 no. What no. was the book that did? Um, oh, I've got that wrong. Well, there's a, there's a couple of books that flew, I suppose. One would be, probably the one that, the, the one that I've written fastest will be my last novel, Gis. Ah. And I wrote that probably in, or less than a year, probably about nine months, mm-hmm. start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, I write very quickly. Um, I always write quickly, no matter mm-hmm. what the project is. 
Um, and you know, once once the ball's rolling, I could be doing ten thousand words plus a week, which means you know, in a couple of months, you've actually got a you, you've actually got a novel if yeah. you do that way. Yeah. But I'm also a very kind of wasteful writer that I that I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and, and uh, I, it would be unusual for me to do a book in um, less than five drafts yeah. and sometimes it's 15, 20, you know. Um, no, Black Earth, White Bones took a long time. Um, it started, um, I, I got the idea of it after I'd written my second novel which was mm. called Brain Joy. Um, and Brainjoy is set in um, Wellington. It's a kind of a futuristic Wellington. So it's, um, it's if you imagine Wellington with 11 million people in it, that's kind of what, that's the setting for Brainjoy. Right. Um, and, and afterwards, I was, um, Gordon McLaughlin interviewed me about the book and we were talking about it and um, you know, he was commenting on this sort of inventing the place. and. That was the point at which I thought, I could do this with a country, I could invent mm -hmm. a country. So that would be way back in uh, 19, I don't know when Brainjo was published, 98 I think. Um, certainly back in the 90s. Um, yes. So it, it took, uh, from that point, it probably took about um, more best part of eight years to write. Ah. Um, and I had doing uh, other projects in between. Really? Well, I wrote two other novels in mm. between. Yes, mm. um, and that's the, uh, that's another thing that I tend to do. I I, I tend to um, put things aside, pick them up again later on. Yeah. What's the reason for that? I'm not a methodical writer. Oh. Um, you know, I I I don't like the word inspiration, but I think there is a sort of sense in which my writing gets plugged into my subconscious. Mm -hmm. My. Yep. Um, which is why I like to write in the mornings, because mm -hmm. um, I don't um, I don't like to get too much space between the sleeping mind and the writing yes. mind. Mm -hmm. I like to have them as close together as possible, mm -hmm. and I often wake up in the middle of the night and start writing. Yes, Black Earth White Bones. You had the Foxton Fellowship. Did that really push that one along for you? Yes, I I got the fellowship to work on Black Earth White Bones. I think. Yeah, and 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 I, I mean, I did I did a lot of a lot of work on, on the book, um, but it took quite a long while to get it shaped together, um, and I suppose certain aspects of um, Kit's character um, took a while to uh, develop and get developed properly. Um, yeah, I don't know really. I, I it, it was a book that I I, I put, uh, picked up and worked on and then put down again. And, and there was research for that one, I imagine. Yeah, there was quite a bit of research. Um, when I had the Fox and Fellowship, I'd spent most of the time there working on Black Earth White Bones, and then in I kind of ran out of steam. And in the last week, I started my um, third novel, third published novel, which mm -hmm. is On River Road. Yes. Um, and. Um, and I started writing that, and that came a lot easier and more, more quickly than, than finished that. And you don't panic about that, about moving no. from one project to another, no? I don't have, no, I don't get, I, I, I don't feel that I have to finish, you know, my vegetables before I can have dessert. Mm -hmm. I just, if 
something's not working, I go away and do something else. I've written very little poetry, but I think that poetry has influenced me yes. as a writer mm -hmm. as much as prose has, and just That's the nice. uh, the rhythm of language yes. and um, the lyricism. Yeah, and 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 uh, metaphor, mm -hmm. which is. I suppose naturalised metaphor, not yes. not fancy, uh, you know, not metaphysical type stuff, but um, you know, naturalised metaphor is uh, something that uh, interests me. Mm -hmm. that, the earliest book I, I can remember mm -hmm. two books from very early. Um, I would have been four, I suppose, um, and one was the Pied Piper of Hamelin, mm -hmm. and I had a um, an edition which had uh, watercolours watercolour paintings on one side of the page and Lovely. the, and the um, actual text on the other. Uh, and the other was a, a poem, a piece of verse, which I've never been able to track down. And it start, started off, this is the story of young Thomas Rook with sleek, shiny feathers and impotent look. <laughs> and it was about this bird, this rook, which stole, um, hopped around and pecked the tops off milk bottles on people's uh, steps and drank the milk in them. And there was another poem in the book was about a, a cow which got its horn stuck in a tree, like you know, charged the tree and got its horn stuck. Uh, and I, I've never been able to, to track those down. I've tried a few times. So yes. your first novel was published when you were 37 in 1979. Does that sound right? No, no, no. my first book. The first which book. was a collection of short stories. Oh, the short stories. Yes. Published in, I was thirty-nine. It was nineteen eighty-one. I never, th I, I never thought of. I mean, I didn't actually think that I was writing. I had a book. Um, I suppose I did. I must have done. I must have got these stories together. And were they ones that had already been published, or was it a um, new set? One or two of them hadn't, but most of them had, hmm. um, and they were all in this kind of vein. This. Surrealistic vein mm. that I'd been writing in mm. for ten years. I was talking to Lindsay Rabbit, um, a poet and a typographer, and um, I can't remember what we were talking about. <clears throat> but he said, "Oh, he said I'm thinking of starting a publishing company." Um, I said, "Well, well, um, I've got some stories. That I'm, you know, you want to have a look at them?" So I, you know, that was all all it was. And he took them away and said, "Yes, this is great. I want to do them." Um, so we got a grant from Creative New Zealand, which was interesting because there was one story they didn't like. Um, they would only give us the grant if it was removed, so that was quite curious. Yeah, mm. that wouldn't happen now, would it? They just wouldn't give know. you the grant. I don't know whether it would or not. What didn't they like? Oh, it was it was quite a gruesome story. Yes, um, but yeah, I, so I can. I don't know what anyone would think of it now. I mean, it's never been published. Anyway, and what was so, that press? Hmm? What was the press? It was called Voice Press, and um, <clears throat> Lindsay did it, and he did a few books. It didn't the press didn't really work for him, um, but um, you know it was was good for me. Yeah. I, uh, it was my first publication, yes. and yeah, and I had a, I was still I was working still working at the bookshop at that stage, so um, we had a launch there, and I had another an Auckland launch at the. Uh, University Bookshop in Auckland, um, and it sold, I don't know, a couple of hundred copies, whatever they, <laughs> whatever they did. 
in those days. I'm just looking at your list here. There's a, there's a gap of 1981, then 1992 yep. to the first novel. What? What happened so there? So like, that should have been the start of something, shouldn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Well, I changed my way of writing after Dreams of Pythagoras was published, and I went to something. I moved, I moved a little bit further back towards realism. It mm -hmm. still wasn't, but um, it was more realistic than that was. More grounded in, well, in some ways more grounded in New Zealand um, and in, in, or in real life experience. Um, and I wrote oh, perhaps another four stories which were published in Landfall mm -hmm. uh, and elsewhere. Um, and then I, and I tried to get another collection together. That's what I was really right. doing in the 90s. I was trying to get a collection of stories together it didn't work, not because the stories weren't any good, but because I couldn't get enough to make them gel as a connection. Right. And a collection. And that was partly because my writing was changing. Um, so they, the things didn't thematically mm. um, and stylistically mm. linked. They neither contrasted nor, nor were they the same. So I had, I had a few shots at it. Um, and I've got a reader's report somewhere in my files from which Michael Gifkins wrote mm -hmm. about um, the stories and, you know, he saying that really he liked a lot of them individually, but he didn't think they worked. And he was quite right, they didn't work. Uh, as, as the 80s went on, the stories that I was writing became more novel-like in the sense that they got longer. Um, and also I was writing sequences, link stories. Um, I had a couple of those um, link sequences which didn't work all that well. And then um, round about the end of the 80s I basically gave up. I thought oh, I had enough, it's not working, I've got to give up. And um, wow. so for a, I didn't write anything for a couple of years. Mm. Um, and it was really the reason that I got back to writing was um, through TFS, through the agency. Which TFS is? Total Fiction Services, yes, it was yes. called. And the idea was that it was going to be, Total Fiction Services was going to be a one-stop shop for writers of fiction. So mm. it was going to be um, assessments and mentoring. And we had an, a, a thing called which never really, which we did a little bit of, but never really got off the ground, called Total Fiction News, which was going to be a newsletter that mm -hmm. went around to people. Um, and being an agent was yes. part of all that. Yep. Um, slowly got off the ground, but one of our earliest clients was Alan Duff. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Alan sent me, a, um, first off, was probably about you know, seven or 8,000 words of really quite... Um, disorganized stuff but mm -hmm. it really it had this kind of incredible power to yeah. it yeah and so I, I I wrote him um an assessment on this and I don't quite know what I said but my feeling was basically sort of you know go away and write a novel so <clears throat> not long after that not long after maybe a year after he turns up with a novel um and um I read it and, you know, boy, this was, this was something interesting. Um, was this Once Were Warriors? Yes, this was Once Were Warriors. Wow. I still remember reading this book, um, this manuscript. He gave me the shivers. I thought, wow. wow. 
I was in my study and I went to where Barbara was in the living room and I said, I think he's done it. Mm. And so we um, found, we, our next problem was to find a publisher for it. And so Bob Ross and Helen Benton had the year before, well, they'd sold their publishing company to Random House um, and then joined Random House's staff and there'd been some kerfuffle there and, and they'd resigned and given up and gone overseas, taken a trip um, and um, had just come back to New Zealand and were wondering what to do. So, and, and Bob was thinking that he was going to start a company to uh, produce seminars on various things, if something he was interested in. So I said to, I said to him, Bob, are you interested in publishing? And um, he said, well, I might be. He said, I, I said, I think I've got a book for you. So I sent him it and, um, you know, I suppose the rest is history in some sense. I mean, so it was a... So what was it published under? What was the company? Uh, Tandem Press. Tandem. So, okay. yeah, I mean, basically mm. it was the reason that Bob and Helen got back into publishing. Mm, it's a lovely say, story. Yeah. Um, and I gave it to Bob because um, I thought this needs somebody who knows the business but who's going to give it his full attention, um, which is, you know, being the first book that they produced under the Tandem Press imprint. Um, they did that. Anyway, I, you know, uh, having the success, success of this book, I, um, I was then, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could write a novel. Maybe I could get back into it. Maybe I'd do something. And I had a contract. <clears throat> I'd just been made redundant from uh, Government Computing Service, which uh, I was working for mm -hmm. as a manager, an IT manager. And I had a contract with the ANZ Bank in Auckland. And we went to, Barbara and I went and stayed up with a, a friend in Auckland. And it was a typical kind of bureaucratic situation. They had, um, I had to produce these standards for the um, computing department. And so I wrote my standards, draft standards, and I sent them off to people to say, ask for comments and approval. And I sat around waiting for responses and nothing happened. So I thought, well, well, I don't know, I could do something. So I st started writing a novel on, com on their computers, and that was why things fall. So, uh, yes. And um, and that um, that's how, how I got back into writing fiction. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we want to remind you about the important work NZSA does for all New Zealand writers through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards, mentorships and advisory and consultancy services. NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers. It lobbies for fair reward for your work and for the protection of your copyright. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about joining.
Chris Owls has had a long and successful literary partnership with his wife, Barbara Owls. Together they founded and continue to run the Literary Agency and Manuscript Assessment Service, TFS. In their 2015 interview, Deborah Shepherd asked Chris about how he and Barbara first met. Well, we met, we met in um, 19, when was it, 1987, through the establishment of the Wellington branch right. of NZSA. We, were at, we first encountered each other at the public meeting which Harvey McQueen called. Um, and we carried on our um, acquaintance um, through activities at the Wellington branch and also at that, at that um, meeting we established a rights group which involved <coughs> among others uh, Jean Watson and right. Barbara and I, I suppose we'd be the most successful uh, writers uh, in the group. So we tend attended that for a couple of years. But Barbara and I started living together at the end of um, well, End of 1988, right at the end of 1988, um, and... You were married to your second wife yes, at that point? Yes, that's right, yeah. Sharon, yeah. yes. Barbara had, she'd published short stories and she'd also written a lot of plays at that stage. She was still writing short stories. And um, it's interesting how the threads tie up. She got, she got a job working for the... Um, Ministry of Education on the Tomorrow Schools project, which was Harvey who had mm. gone away, left um, a pen to to work on, <laughs> and um, she was a writer there. And she was a bit like me with Whiting's Hall. She was um, busy there one day and had nothing to do, so she started writing a short story, um, and she called it Hot Chips, um, and it was published in Metro. And that was a story which eventually became The Warrior Queen. And, oh, okay. and The Warrior Queen was published yeah. in 95. Right. Um, so, yeah, and she'd been right working on that for oh, a year or two before that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so just tell me a little, something about what it's like. Uh, this would be the, your first wife who's a writer. Yes. And what yes. it's like having a literary Partnership, yeah. an intimate partnership, as well as a working partnership. Yes, it's yeah, it's always worked perfectly well. Yes. Um, we've never felt we were in competition with each other. No. Um, I mean, I've always been very proud of what she's done. Hmm. I can remember when the Warrior Queen was published. I um, I was working. I had a contract then working for the Public Trust, and I used to walk up and down Lepton Key to all the bookshops and. Checking out how many have been sold. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's that that book made quite a splash, didn't it? Yes, it did. I it was very successful. Probably one of the yeah. one of the best-selling books of the nineties, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it must be amazing to have someone that you can, you know, toss ideas around with, show drafts too. I know yeah, just in the yeah, we do. In your acknowledgements, uh, your yeah. knowledge. We talk about. Yeah. I mean, writing is really very central to yes. our lives, both our lives, um, both through our own work and talking about that and also uh, other people's writing through the business, through assessments and mentoring and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but we don't, I mean, we don't, we don't usually 
show um, write stuff to each other until we've done a first draft. Mm -hmm. Either either a first draft or we're stuck. I mean, right. um, yep. or I'd, we don't know. Yeah, we don't quite know where to take something or whether it's any good or not. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, it would be when we've got a first draft and we're reasonably comfortable with that. Then we. Yep. Um, and then once we've read the first draft, then um, you can talk about it to the other person. You can talk about it on a daily basis about mm. what they've been doing, what the problems are, mm. and whether it's working or not. And Where does your work ethic come from, the motivation to do this? That's a good question. What is this force um, that empowers oh, you? Yeah, I think it's an addiction, really. An addiction? Mm, it's just a compulsion. I'm not, a, I'm not someone who is a, in normal life with a great work ethic. I'm not a perfectionist in, yeah, in daily life. Um, but, but yeah, but I just, you know, I, when it comes to uh, this stuff, you just have to do it. I mean, I'd do it, I'd do it if I was never published again. I'd keep on writing. A snapshot of a writing day working on a novel? Depends when I wake up. Mm -hmm. If I wake up in if I wake up before seven o'clock, I start writing, and then I have breakfast around about seven. Um, so if I wake up, wake up at four o'clock in the morning, mm. I start writing at four o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> um, I have breakfast between seven, seven thirty, and shower, and so on, um, and then I start writing again. Uh, and I write you normally until about midday, and by midday, and I've usually run out of steam, so yeah. it's um, I stop at that point. I find it difficult. I can't write in the afternoons. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I can write anywhere. I don't have to right. be here. I, you know, um, and sometimes I go for a walk in the mornings, about 10.30. Yep. I walk down to the hut and I have a cup of coffee and I have my iPad <coughs> and I keep writing on my iPad mm -hmm. until, um, and then, until I come back home. And, so yeah, you don't so write in a notebook, you write no, I've, I right now always on a machine. Um, probably still would, I think. If I got really stuck, I might actually go and go back to pen and paper mm -hmm. and um, start writing in that kind of way. Um, but it's yes, and and I write very fast, as I say, um, especially when I get a roll on. Um, yeah. uh, and then um, I write until I get stuck. Until I can't, until it goes wrong, until I feel it's come off the rails, or yeah. uh, and then I go back to the beginning and start again. Ah. And um, so, typically by the end, by the end of when I've got to the end, um, the beginning and the middle have been written four or five times, so they're in quite good shape. And then the the rest of it's first draft. Yes. Mm. And endings are they? Are they difficult to come up with? Do you have a sense uh, of them before you start? Or no. I love the way you ended um, Black Earth, White Bones. Mm. There's a moment there where it suddenly it shifts up a gear and it's mm. Mm. all happening. I don't find endings difficult because either it, the book ends itself or it doesn't end. Um, and if it doesn't end, I don't know what the ending is, I'll leave it and go away and do something else. Mm. I think that um, very often the problem is that if you think the ending's wrong, it's gone wrong before that. Oh. It's not, 
-hmm. You can fiddle around with the ending forever mm -hmm. and you'll never get it right mm -hmm. because it's something that's probably happened three quarters of the way through. It's taken the wrong direction or something like that. So are you as you write, are you writing to discover your story? What do you start with? How much of the story do you know? I usually have... Um, <clears throat> is it characters? What is it? Yes, you need characters at the beginning. Um, I need characters and I need to have a good sense of the opening scene, mm -hmm. uh, what it's about, and and once you've got the opening scene, you need they need the opening sentence. But there's always um, some scenes along the way that I have not the end. I, I, Occasionally I might know the end, but um, usually not. But I usually got a scene in the middle or and or one three quarters of the way through. And it's like hoops and you fire, you know, if you fire your arrow through the two hoops, then you know you, the shape of the story's right, it's going to work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. What's the most pleasurable part of it, of writing? Well, I'm, I, I'm someone who takes most pleasure in uh, the writing. Um, Barbara takes a lot of pleasure in rewriting. I don't know whether she would say it was the most pleasure or not, uh, but I take quite a bit more pleasure in the writing than in the rewriting. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it is, it's, it, it is discovery. It's, it's discovery. I mean, I can remember writing Whiting's Fall, and if you fairly early on um, uh, in the book, the, um, the main character and his, I can't even remember his name now. He and his wife drive to this motel out in the country and uh, they go into this motel and he pushes a button on the counter. Um, and I got to that scene and um, I really, uh, well, I don't, it's not that I was worried about what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. I pushed the button, he pushed the button on the counter, the door opened and the girl comes out. And I, she completely surprised me. Really? She, I didn't expect it would be her. Or someone mm. like that, um, and so in a sense, the whole. Well, that was a major. She's a major. Yes, that's theme, right. That's right. That's right. I, I, I so I didn't. Character. I mean, I knew. For example, I knew where he was going, and I knew what he was going for. It yep. was his father's yes. been living there, and yep. he's going to discover his, uh, trying to find out in some sense about his father and reconnect with him in some way. Well, I ha obviously had the, um, the father's. Uh, partner, the woman, yes. uh, uh, and I had her family. Yep. I had a sense of her family, mm -hmm. um, but the girl was a surprise. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Mm. So things like that which make you, you know, it's, it's exciting to discover these yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, and, mm, just the and what about um, the dialogue? Because the dialogue is well, just feels very natural reading it. Um, oh, they just talk. I mean, you know, you get them you put them in the room and they start talking. It's hard to make them shut up. I mean, really. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have any problems with dialogue. I do. Um, I do hear it. I do. do you? You know, I, I'm quite a. Um, I, I hear their voices in my head. Yeah. And I, and, um, do you speak it aloud as you're writing it? No, I'm not, no. not. No, not as I'm writing it. I do sometimes. I mean, I'm. I'm. Casted says he's the same. I'm a. I'm quite a slow reader. I mean, I'm one of these people who hasn't actually 
learn to skim read in any way. I kind of, when I read, I hear it. When I read anything, I kind of yes. hear it. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that's, and Carl says the same thing, I think that that's um, a problem when you're reading, but when you're writing, it's actually a good thing because, okay. you know, you, uh, you're always aware of the rhythm of the sentences and the rhythm yes. of the words and the sound of them yeah. and um, how the characters sound and mm. the rhythm of their speech and so on, mm. yeah. The qualities needed to be an author in New Zealand? People who think it's going to be easy uh, in for a shock. Mm. Uh, and I don't mean that publication is going to be easy because publication isn't easy but I, but <clears throat> you have to have you have to be able you have to develop some critical uh, faculties in relation to your own writing and I <clears throat> and I think in some ways that's become more difficult to do in um, I mean you know when when I was nobody taught me to write I mean I taught myself Whereas these days you've you know you've got these uh, I mean courses. I'm part we're part of the mm. industry we give feedback mm. to people mm. and you've got creative writing courses mm. and, and nobody now imagines they're going to be a serious fiction writer unless they've got an MA in creative writing well that's rubbish really mm. um, however I <clears throat> I don't want to decry those no. courses because I no. think that they are they're valuable but I, I I do think it changes the attitude to writing. Um, and it changes expectations as well. Um, when I started, when I was young, writing in my twenties, I didn't think really about getting published. It wasn't. <clears throat> I wasn't writing to get published. Mm. Um, I suppose you know, there's, there's always part of your mind which is thinking, "Oh yeah, I know that's going to be great when this is published, or wouldn't it be wonderful to be a famous writer?" and um, Peter Smart asked me at one point why I wrote, and I told him I wrote because I wanted to be famous, which was, a, a, um, he didn't take that very well. Um, but I mean, I mean, I was being ironic, but um, there is that, there's always that aspect to it. But um, I didn't, I, I never thought of it in terms of a career, in the sense that I could see how things would be mapped out and I was writing this in order for that to happen or for this to be published or, uh, you know, it's <clears throat> it's something I wanted to do. And mm. I, uh, and the, the, the expression I have for it is it's, it's the joy of making. It's the joy of making something and if you don't have that joy then there's no point in doing it. Mm. There's no point in doing it um, because you're not, you know, well. Financially you're not really going to be rewarded. There's a remote chance you would be fabulously mm. rich but Mm. Uh, most of our expectations are that that, that won't happen. Mm. Um, so I think uh, I think what you need is to is that you've got to you've got to appreciate the activity for its own sake, um, and yeah, take take joy in it. And you have to work hard, and you have to be able to have a sense of um, perfecting something. Um, and not be, yeah, not be satisfied. That's where the critical faculty comes in, not be satisfied with anything less than the best you can do. Mm. Mm. 
You've been listening to an interview from 2015 between Chris Else and Deborah Shepherd. If you haven't already heard it, go back and listen to the last episode where they discuss other aspects of Chris's life and career. Otherwise, make sure you join us next time by subscribing to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.